Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, We're going to continue our series. We're going to pick it back up from where we were before Advent. Uh, That's one of the reasons why I preach verse by verse, by the way, so that I'm not tempted to share my opinions from God's Word, uh, which I could in fact do if I chose to. Uh, We had all kinds of wild and crazy things happen this week, and there's all kinds of views and perspectives. And uh, if I didn't have an expository plan to go verse by verse, I'd be liable and tempted to take us down those streams. It is, it is a protection of God to decide to preach through books of the Bible. Because then no matter what craziness happens throughout the week, I'm not tempted to change my preaching to fit every whim and circumstance of the world. So we were in 2 Corinthians before Advent, we went through Advent, now we're just getting right back into 2 Corinthians, and that way we can trust that God is saying what we want to hear. The theme of 2 Corinthians is strength in weakness, and this morning's theme from 2 Corinthians 10 is strength in weakness through community. You've heard me from this very spot many times say and implore us all to understand and embrace the reality that the Christian life is primarily corporate as an enterprise. And that flies in the face of American evangelicalism that is constantly sending out signals that the Christian life is a me and Jesus kind of thing. Look, secondarily, the Christian life is me and Jesus. But primarily, it is us and Jesus. And what we're going to find this morning is that the New Testament clearly teaches that Christians are to Grow in Christ in community as part of a local body of believers under authority, protected by God. Before I read the passage, I want to show a clip that illustrates that. It's from the highly acclaimed animated film from 2002. Can that be real? 2002. I'm getting old. Some of you all are too. It's the movie Ice Age. Uh, Ice Age uh, is this animated film that begins with a group of saber-toothed tigers attacking a nomadic tribe. And there's this one mom with a young son, and she seeks protection for her son by running away. Well, the saber-toothed tigers corner her at a waterfall. She has no choice. She cradles her son and jumps. As she jumps and hits the water and the rocks, she is mortally mortally injured. But she survives long enough to place her child on the riverbank. Then along comes a woolly mammoth named Manny and a sloth named Sid. And they rescue this baby that they decide to call Pinky because of the color of the skin, I guess. Well, along comes one of the saber-toothed tigers that attacked the nomadic tribe, and he wants to steal the infant 
for a snack. Well, the woolly mammoth, Manny, steps in. He's so much bigger than the tiger. The tiger has no choice but to walk away. But later on, as the tiger's still stalking the little community of Manny and Sid and the infant, the saber-toothed tiger says, well, I'll tell you what, I will help guide you to the camp of the tribe. And of course, he's got other designs, but he learns about community. He's in the cat-eat-cat realm of the saber-toothed tigers, and he's never seen a community like this. We pick up the action where this, this newly formed small community is walking over the frozen tundra to get to the nomadic tribe to return the baby. And all of a sudden they realize they're over top an active volcano. As you watch this clip, ask yourself what lessons you may need to learn about the power of community, especially when you're weak. Well, would you look at that? The tiger actually did it. There's half peak. Next stop, Glacier Pass. How could I ever have doubted you? Did you hear that little fella? You're almost home. My feet are sweaty. Do we have to get a news flash every time your body does something? Doing it for attention, just ignore him. Seriously, my feet are really hot. Oh! Tell me that was your stomach. I'm sure it was just thunder from underground. I wish I could jump like that. Wish granted. Ah! Come on, move faster. Have you noticed the river of lava? Come on, say something. Anything. What? What? I can't hear you. You're standing on my trunk. Oh. Oh, you're okay. Oh, you're okay. Why did you do that? You could have died trying to save me. That's what you do in a herd. You look out for each other. 
Well, thanks. I don't know about you guys, but we are the weirdest herd I've ever seen. Maybe next to this herd, we are the weirdest herd I've ever seen. That's what you do in a herd. You look out for each other. Manny could have died. Jesus did die. Looking out for this community. And he calls us to be willing to lay down our lives for one another in community. The Christian life is primarily corporate and only secondarily is it individualistic. Is that your understanding of the Christian life? God's plan for discipling his people is membership, involvement, and engagement in a local church under the authority of a body of elders who are tasked to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. What are the means of grace uniquely available to the church that God provides? Well, first of all, there's the preaching of the word. There's worship, there's fellowship, there's prayer, there's the practice of generosity. But then we come to what 2 Corinthians 10 is all about. A unique means of grace that maybe we don't see as a means of grace. Not very popular in these contemporary times. As a matter of fact, a means of grace that most churches don't even practice. And I'm talking about the beauty and the grace of church discipline. Church discipline has been ordained by Christ, taught by Paul, to restore and mend broken sinners. And Paul talks about it in this passage. Let me set the context. Uh, There were a group of false teachers that came into Corinth, and they started tearing down Paul. And there was a lot to tear down. We, I don't know what your, your thoughts are of the Apostle Paul, but he was a sickly, wimpy, skinny, scrawny looking guy. And he probably spoke with a squeaky voice. He wasn't very impressive in person. And so these false teachers that came into Corinth said, We cannot believe that you're following Paul. He's not an apostle, he's a geek. Look at us. Look at our physical stature. Look, listen to our oratory skills. We are filled with the Spirit of God. We are filled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Who's this Paul? And what's more, what's this gospel of his? And, and these impressive teachers were trying to get the Corinthians to go back under the law. They were, they were trying to get the Corinthians to become Jewish in order to be saved. So Paul understands what they're saying about him, and he writes in chapter 10, okay, I may be unimpressive in person, in speech, and maybe my letters appear more bold than my presence, but let me tell you something. I've been given authority to shepherd the church. 
and the elders with me, we together are anointed by God and charged by God to make sure we root out all evil and unrepentance in the church. And that's what 2 Corinthians 10 is all about. 2 Corinthians 10 is how God has orchestrated church leadership and anointed church leadership to disciple the members. And of course, that includes each other. So that we would be protected from evil. So that we would go and bear fruits. So let's all stand out of reverence for God and His Word. And follow along with me as I read 2 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 11. This is God's Word. I, Paul, myself entreat you, that means implore, beg, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. See, he's talking about what the false teachers are telling the Corinthians. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean walking in sin. That means walking as mere men, walking as natural men. Paul is saying there's a power in the church that's unique to humanity. He says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, not human resources, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You see what he's saying there? The church, the local church, has been granted divine power to pull down strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and for not destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. He wants to transform our lives. And he's done that by placing us under authority, loving, meek, gentle authority that strongholds in our lives might be pulled down and Christ might be exalted in our lives. That's how much He loves us. Let's pray. Father, would You please open our minds and would You soften our hearts and Lord, might we not be afraid of this passage, but instead might we hear your goodness, your grace, and your mercy and kindness through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat.
So three ways we're to lean into the strength of community. First of all, lean into community as an expression of God's voice. Now, this is going to stretch some of us, and I want to make sure uh, this church is like the Berean Christians in the book of Acts, where Luke writes that they examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying is true. And let me encourage you. Um, I'm going to seek to be very faithful to God's Word. I'm an umpire. Uh, I call it as I see it, balls and strikes. I seek to do that accurately this morning. But examine the Scriptures and see if what I'm saying is true. So we're to lean in community as an expression of God's voice. And what I'm going to say is the local church leadership has been delegated authority by Christ so that the plurality of the elders, understanding the Scriptures, interpreting them properly, and applying them properly, is the voice of God. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I entreat you, I am begging you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Not just speaking like Christ. Paul is actually saying he's speaking through Christ. Christ is speaking through the body of elders in the leadership of the church. Paul teaches that. And Jesus taught that. I want, to write, I want you to write this passage down. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Okay, write that down and, and study that this week. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Jesus says that when the church gathers to talk about unrepentance in some people's lives, when the elders get together, Jesus says, what you bind on earth, in other words, if you bind somebody under discipline, shall have already been bound in heaven. In other words, the, the elders through Christ ruling and reigning in the church are actually acting out what Jesus has already, de- already decreed. Now you think, well, how can that be? Well, How did God create the universe out of nothing? The Christian life is supernatural. And of course, Jesus rules and reigns supernaturally. And Paul is telling us in this passage, and Jesus is telling us in Matthew 18, that he supernaturally reigns through the plurality of the elders. See, you'll you'll never see a singular elder making decisions It's always in the plurality. And that's the key. Sure, one of us may be mistaken. Sure, several of us might be mistaken. But if we have 55, 60 elders and they they hear about things that need to be addressed and someone bows up and says, no, I'm not going to listen. You got to be pretty arrogant to say, well, I know the voice of God and you 60 who are trained don't. And oh, by the way, you 60, that the Scriptures say Jesus rules and reigns through, you don't know what you're doing. Now, even if it's possible, and it is, for a session to be mistaken, a session is the body of elders of a local church, in our denomination, we have a presbytery 
of local churches in our denomination. And if a member thinks they've been ungraciously treated by the elders who are seeking to speak the voice of Christ to them, then they simply need to appeal to the presbytery. So now you have scores and scores of elders brought in. And if they think that what the session did is biblical and right and gracious and restorative, and you still disagree, and again, how, how arrogant do you need to be where you will stand up against all these people who have been trained and say, you don't know what you're talking about. But you can. You can. And if that happens, we have all of the elders of all of the churches in our entire denomination. And there's a commission of those elders, pastors, teachers, and ruling elders. And then they'll hear the case. Now, what is the chance that hundreds and hundreds of elders are all wrong and you alone are right. Do you, you see what I'm talking about here? There is a beauty of trusting the promise of God that when the local church declares, they're simply acting out what Christ has decreed. And that's why Paul says in verse 1, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul is saying there's something unique about the local church speaking on behalf of Christ. But it is a meek and gentle voice, just like Jesus's is. Look at verse 8. Paul then says, even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave, I'm not going to be ashamed. Now, it look, can I just tell you, I feel a little crazy standing up here this morning and, and teaching that Jesus rules and reigns through a group of men as fallen as I am. Trust me, do you not think I think that sounds nuts? Of course I think it sounds nuts. But I'm driven to what does God's Word say? Listen, get ready, buckle the chin strap. We're going to go to much deeper places than this in a few moments. we got to believe that the risen Christ is able to rule and reign and speak through the local church. He says in verse 2, he uses a different word, but the same uh, thought, I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to be bold. In other words, Paul is saying grace has teeth. Grace is meek, which is strength under control, and gentle, and yet grace has teeth too. In other words, when there's unrepentance among believers in a local congregation, the leaders of the church, the elders corporately, are to speak boldly into that person's life. And that boldness is related to discipline. Now, if you're asking what discipline is, let me take you through the voice of Christ and the process of speaking Christ into each other's lives. If you look at Matthew 18, the first thing he says in verse 15 is that we are responsible to engage each other with the surprising power of grace. That's our mission statement, right? Engaging every neighbor with the surprising power of grace. Over the fence of our neighbor's backyards, that's sharing the grace of God with the lost. 
that's over the mountain into the city, sharing the grace of God among the poor, uh, the disenfranchised, uh, and the lost. Uh, Engaging every neighbor overseas, taking the gospel to the nations. And then, and what our focus is this morning, engaging every neighbor with grace over the pew. The person in front of us, behind us, beside us. Matthew 18.15, Jesus says, If you have a friend who is caught in a sin, then it, you are your brother's keeper, by the way. And you to approach your brother or sister and show them their fault. Do it gently, do it meekly, do it kindly, do it lovingly, but do it. That's the way we take care of each other, just like with Ice Age. Notice that, that, uh, that Manny cradled the child, but he kicked Sid, but it was a kick of love, right? It was a boot of grace. He, he kicked him to safety. And then he threw and tossed Diego, the saber-toothed tiger. But it wasn't punishment. It was getting him to safety. And that's what church discipline is. It's, it, 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 may, it may feel like there's some bruised ribs. It may feel like you, you stung your, your wrist against a rock. But it's all love. It's all grace. So Jesus says, if, if you've gone privately and they repent, you've won your brother or sister. If they don't listen to you, however, take someone else along who's mature in Christ, who knows the Scriptures, who's a member of the church, and who knows that person and also knows that person's unrepentance. Talk to them. If they don't listen to the two of you, then you bring it to the church. So the whole assumption here is, is membership, involvement, engagement, and submission to the local church. And then when you bring it to the church, there are three steps to the voice of Christ in church discipline. The first one is a repetition of what you did privately. The elders of the church hear the case, they, they understand the sin, they love the person, they bring the person in, they talk about the event, they say, is this true? And if the person says yes, then we are calling you to repentance. We are admonishing you. That's the first step of loving, kind discipline. If the person thumbs their nose and says, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I'm doing. You do whatever you need to do. Then the next step of the elders is to lovingly call them in again, try to implore them and entreat them and beg of them like Paul is doing to repentance. If they refuse to repent, then we engage from admonition to suspension. Suspension is, is barring them from the Lord's table. Now you think, well, that sounds mean. Why would you do that? If a child's constantly running out in the street to play with a ball and trucks are coming by at 55 miles an hour and you put them in their room for a timeout or simmer time so they can't do that, is that mean? No, you're, you're protecting the child. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 says this is a supernatural table. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that unrepentant sinners, there's only sinners in the world, right? But there's repentant sinners and unrepentant sinners. We're called to be repentant sinners. If an unrepentant, hardened, rebellious person comes to the table because it's supernatural, they're mocking God and they're mocking the work of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11 says some of you have fallen asleep, have died, and others you have become sick. So it is a protective grace 
that the elders of the church say, please, stay away from the table. We're barring you from the table for your own good, for your own health, because God really is in this thing. See, we've got to keep going back to that, folks. God really is in the local church. He really, truly is. As a matter of fact, Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 16 that he says in Matthew 18. Matthew 16, Jesus says to the disciples, who do you think I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And he says, truly, I say to you, upon this rock, it's a play on Peter's name. It's not Peter. Peter is not the rock of the church. It's a play on his name, a wordplay on his name. On this rock, not you, Peter, on this rock, the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I am the way and the truth and life, on this rock I will build my church. Church. Local churches make up the universal church. And then he says this to the disciples. Whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. He says, I'm giving the church the keys of the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom to unlock forgiveness, but also discipline. And so when the elders, with good reason, protect you by barring you from the table, it's, it's not just human authority. It's divine authority. And then if someone still doesn't listen, then the elders are forced in kindness to excommunicate. In other words, to put out of the communion. Now, you know what happens to many people when they're excommunicated in our day? They just go to another church. Because very few churches practice biblical church discipline. So go ahead. Do what you want to do. But I'll just go down the street. Well, they can do that. But God is still at work through the voice of Christ, through the elders. Listen to these two verses here. 1 Corinthians 5. Again, the Corinthian church. You are to deliver an unrepentant, immoral man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. First of all, hear the meekness and gentleness. The aim of discipline is that this guy's spirit would be saved. But Jesus, but Paul says, hand this person over to Satan. What does that mean? That means remove them from the protective umbrella of the church. Jesus says the same thing, by the way, in Matthew 18. He says, if they don't repent from hearing the elders, then let them be to you as a tax collector, as a sinner. In other words, put them out of the church. Now, putting someone out of the church isn't a decision of mortal men, even though it is. It's a decision that is being acted out from heaven through mortal men. But it is a significant act. Now, when I do baptisms over here, whenever I have children especially, I often tell you that not only is it a symbol of the gospel and the water, the shed blood of Christ, and the raining out of the Holy Spirit on people through the gospel, 
But I say it's also placing the infant who's not yet saved, but is covenantally holy before God. 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. write that one down as well. The child is covenantally holy, meaning they're set apart. It means they're under the protective umbrella of the church. Excommunication is reverse baptism. It's reverse baptism. As baptism supernaturally brings the child under all of the graces of the church, excommunication removes the unrepentant sinner out from under the protection of the church and exposes them to the supernatural attacks of Satan himself. You think, but that's just craziness. Really? Is it crazy that, that God created nothing, everything out of nothing? Is it crazy that God raised uh, a man from the dead? Is it crazy that God became men? man? Then, then why would you think it's crazy that God's word says when the elders speak, they speak into reality what Christ has already ordained. We are all called to place ourselves under the authority of a local church because the Christian life is primarily corporate, not individual. Now, I spent a lot of time on point one so we can breeze through points two and three because what I've said in point one is, uh, is already in verse in. Uh, the second third point. Secondly, lean in community as an expression of God's protection. I hope that was obvious. Church discipline is a sign of God's protection. If you look at verse 3, Paul says that we wage war by the power of God. And notice the plurals. Paul doesn't say, I wage war. He says the weapons of our warfare, the plurality of elders. You're thinking, well, wait a minute, Paul's an apostle. Well, so was Peter an apostle. In 1 Peter 5, Peter says, not I'm an apostle, but he says, as a fellow elder, I say to you other elders, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Dear flock, you, you, trust me, you can't get around this. This is just simple Bible 101. This is... You, you can't interpret it any other way. And it's for our good. Look, I am a man under authority. I'm not pontificating, making decisions related to people's repentance or unrepentance. And I can be placed under discipline. But remember, you're only under discipline for unrepentance. <laughs> you're, you're not under discipline because you did something wrong. I do something wrong every day, multiple times a day. But I want to repent. I want to confess it. I want to acknowledge it. I want to say, oh God, I don't want to be such a knucklehead. But unrepentance is, I did it. I don't care that I did it. And I'll do it again. And I don't care what you say. That's the attitude that God wants to protect us from because it is deadly. And that is the attitude that requires weapons of divine power, the prayers, the counsel of the church. 
Verse 4, divine power to destroy strongholds. The picture is that an unrepentant sinner has been kidnapped from the church and placed in Satan's stronghold. And the church is to attack those gates of hell, tear down those strongholds, and recapture for Christ the unrepentant sinner. That's what it talks about when it says destroying strongholds. How do we destroy strongholds? By destroying arguments and every lofty opinion, verse 5, raised against the knowledge of God. Look, one of the, one of the, the train wrecks of an individualized Christian life is we actually begin to think we know what we're talking about. We don't. I don't. Do you, do you think I just sit down with a pen and paper and say, okay, Jesus, teach me the Word? I study my brains out every week. I probably put 50 hours of study into this passage this week. If, if I was left to my own devices, I wouldn't come up with things that would be accurate. I desperately need the church universal to be my teacher so that I can teach according to God's will, this dear flock. But when we teach, it's not like you're going down to the Rotary Club and listening to a speaker. Because God promises the word preached in a local congregation is mighty to pull down strongholds in our lives and to lead us gently to repentance. And then look at verse 5. The second thing church leadership does is takes thought every captive, takes every thought captive the obedience to Christ. Now, let's have some fun with this. How many of us have claimed this individually over and over and over? I need to take that thought captive of the obedience of Christ. By golly. Well, <laughs> that's not even what the text is about. I mean, there's nothing wrong with you wanting to take every thought captive to Christ, but that's not what it's talking about. It's not, see, we got nabbed again, didn't we? This isn't about the individual Christian learning how to take every thought captive of the obedience of Christ. That's not what it's about. It's about Paul and the elders tearing down strongholds and helping the church corporately through the teaching of the Word take and discipline Take every thought captive. It's the elders, it's the leadership primarily that Paul is talking about here. Secondarily, there's an individual application. Yeah, it'd probably be good to take thought every captive, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So Paul says clearly that discipline is for our protection, not to get a pound of flesh. And then lastly, thirdly, uh, lean into community as an expression of God's restoration. The aim of discipline is the glory of God, the purity of the church, and the restoration of unrepentant sinners. That's the only aim. Nobody wants to punish. Nobody wants to be mean. Nobody wants to be harsh. A parent that truly loves his, his or her child, are they being mean if they discipline them? Not if they're 
really loving the child well, they're not. Look at verse 8. Paul talks about the authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you. In Galatians 6, Paul uses the same word when he talks about individual Christians over the pew in the congregation seeking to restore one another when you're in a trespass. But it says, looking to yourself, doing it gently, lest you too be tempted. In 2 Corinthians 13, 9, we're going to look at in a few weeks, your, your restoration is what we pray for. Now, that word restoration is, is, was used of the fishermen, the disciples. When their nets were ripped, that word restoration means to mend nets. Or it means to put together a broken bone. That's the role of the local church leadership. You see the elders heading out now to get the communion elements. You understand now why I say every month, if you're a member in good standing of an evangelical church, then yes, come to this table. But if I don't say that, what if you're from a church down the street that does practice church discipline? They've placed you out from under the umbrella. They've supernaturally exposed you now to Satan's attacks. And you come to this table. You're not supposed to come to this table for your own protection. Now, if you will repent of your unrepentance, then anyone is invited to this table. Look, I am unworthy to come to this table in and of myself. Just from the week I've lived. And look, I wasn't doing crazy things this week. I was just wrestling with my flesh like I do every week. This is a table for repentant sinners. And if you would acknowledge your sin and humble yourself before God and His church, then you are welcome to this table. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and Peter is so right. In it, there are so many things that are hard to understand. But God, we pray that, that these people have heard from you, and that they would actually be encouraged to know that you are so active, risen Christ, in the life of this church. And not because this church is special. That's what you ordain for every biblical church. So, Lord, we set apart these elements now from their common use. We recognize them to be bread and the fruit of the vine. But we ask that you'd use them to soften us and to transform us more into the image of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.